Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. I am so excited to work through the book of Leviticus. This is a wonderful word from God. And I can tell by your laughter that some of you are among those who, when I said, yeah, I think we're going to go through Leviticus next, let out groans. <sighs> Leviticus? It sounds weird. Isn't that the one? It's repetitive, and there's, there's blood, and priests, and it's... it's a, what, how could that have any meaning for, for our lives? I think most of us look at Leviticus, or have, as kind of flyover country in the Bible. It's there, but you don't necessarily want to visit it that often, right? It's also the, the quicksand of those yearly Bible reading plans. People start Genesis, and they get through Exodus, and you get to Leviticus, and oh, and they just stop reading. But I've got to tell you, this book is profound. It's full of wonderful laws that are much more exciting than we initially think. It's got some good stories in it. I mean, Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire to the Lord, and he kills them in judgment. It's exciting. There's at the center of the book the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur which points us directly to our Lord Jesus Christ. There is much in this book, and I, I hope that by the time we are done with it, that you walk away going, I kind of like Leviticus. It was so relevant to me, I had no idea. The book of Leviticus answers what is perhaps the most rudimentary question in human existence. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How can God's holiness and human sinfulness coexist? That's the question that Leviticus seeks to answer. And it provides part of the answer for us in chapter 1. The main idea of which is this. God's holiness requires atonement for sins before we can be in his presence, and God graciously provides the means for atonement. And then in response to that truth, the exhortation is to praise God for his provision. Or if you are a non-Christian, to trust in his provision. You see your outline there before you in this chapter, have God's holiness and God's graciousness. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for this time we have to come together and learn about you. We believe that every part of your word is useful for correcting, rebuking, and teaching so that your people can be equipped for the work of ministry. We believe that we honor you in giving ourselves to Leviticus. We pray that you would change us here, that you would help us to behold you, our God, in all your glory, that we would have a deeper appreciation for the cross of Christ. We thank you that you would give our hearts the appropriate affection that is due to you. God, Thrill us this morning at your design, at your redemptive purposes. We praise you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we need a little bit of context before we dive into Leviticus. And to, to get that context, we're going to reach back into Genesis briefly, and then walk through Exodus, not as briefly, and then we'll be in Leviticus, okay? Okay. So all of this goes back to when God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. And he says, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. You are going to be a fruitful person, Abraham. But first, your descendants will find their way into a foreign land and they will be enslaved for about 400 years. At which point I will bring them out and take them to the land I've promised you. Fast forward a little bit and we run into Joseph, a character that is a descendant of Abraham and that you're probably familiar with. 
Remember, Joseph has those dreams, uh, basically, of his family bowing down to him as a worshiper or as a worshiper, as a ruler or a king. And he tells them about it, which is not the best advice ever. Now, hey, this is what I think this dream means, that you guys are going to bow down to me. And that doesn't make him the most popular guy in his family. In fact, it leads to his brothers deciding, you know, Joseph kind of sucks. Let's, let's sell him into slavery, right? And so they sell him into slavery, and eventually he ends up in Egypt. And God preserves him throughout this process. He works in different places. He is in and out of the pit, literally. And God raises him up to the extent that he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. There is nobody in Egypt that is more powerful than Joseph. Joseph calls all the shots. The Bible says that Joseph was as Pharaoh himself. And he got that to that position by interpreting Pharaoh's dreams about famine that would come to the land. Pharaoh couldn't figure it out, and Joseph said, this is what it means. We're going to have a bunch of plenty, and then we're going to, there's going to be a bunch of want, a really big famine, so we're going to store up grain. And so that's what happens. A famine comes, and Joseph has stored up grain, and guess who has to come to Joseph to get some grain? His brothers that sold him into slavery. And so when they come to get the grain, Joseph brutally slaughters them all in a rageful vengeance. No. I was just checking to make sure you were paying attention. Joseph says, God brought me here. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he says, bring the whole family down. And so all of Joseph's family, which is Abraham's descendants, all of them move into Egypt and they multiply and they flourish. And then Joseph dies. And Exodus opens up and tells us, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And that Pharaoh that arose that didn't know Joseph looked around at all these Israelites and said, they are multiplying like rabbits. They are everywhere. They are outnumbering us. And if we don't do something, they're going to overtake us. And so the solution was to enslave the Hebrew people. We read at the end of Exodus chapter 2 that the people cry out to God. We read that God heard and God knew. And this launches us into Exodus. We meet Moses, who is God's instrument to deliver his people. And Moses, if you remember, he he goes to the people and he tells them, hey, you're going to follow me. Our God is going to deliver us. And he goes to Pharaoh and he tells them each time, hey, you need to let the people of the Lord go or this plague will come upon you. And these 10 plagues, all of them, show how the God of Israel is the one true God. In all of the plagues, the God of Israel is conquering the so-called gods of Egypt. All the plagues correspond to a so-called false god in Egypt. It shows the superiority of Yahweh. And it leads all the way up where it's going to be this climactic event, the tenth plague, when darkness will come upon the land and the angel of the Lord will take the firstborn in every home. The firstborn child in every home will be killed as part of the Lord's judgment. With an exception. Those who follow God's instructions and slaughter a lamb and paint their doorways with its blood and eat with a staff in their hand and sandals on their feet, they will be passed over. The angel of death will not kill the firstborn in their household. And then you remember that night, there is a cry in Egypt of terror as there is a firstborn that is dead in most every household. And Pharaoh tells Moses, get out, go. And as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, they ask their neighbors for things like gold and silver and pots. And in so doing, they plunder the Egyptians, just as God had predicted long ago. And so they they make their way out, and then the Egyptians change their mind. Pharaoh pursues. The Red Sea is split. Moses and the Israelites go across. The Red Sea is unsplit, and it consumes Pharaoh and his armies. And they get to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up and receives the law of the Lord. He receives the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments. Remember uh, the Mount Sinai, no one can touch it or they'll die. And so he's getting the instructions. He brings part of the instructions down, gives them to the people, 
the people say, yes, we're willing to enter into a covenant with the Lord our God. We will do everything that he says for us to do and enjoy his blessing. And if we break this covenant, we will endure his curse. Moses goes back up the mountain to finish receiving the instruction from the Lord. And before he comes back down, the people are worshiping the golden calf. They've broken the covenant. They are a sinful people. Moses tries to intercede and make atonement for the sins of those who were unrepentant, but God will not allow it. and He brings a plague upon the people. Still, God does not abandon his people. He keeps his promise. He renews the covenant. And the people finish receiving the instructions for how they can build this tent of meeting where God's presence will be specially manifested and localized, specifically above the Ark of the Covenant in what's called the Holy of Holies. Y'all are starting to remember a lot now from Exodus. It was a long time ago. And so Exodus finishes with this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, having been constructed. And we read in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, The cloud, that's the glory cloud, covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, verse 1 in chapter 1 of Leviticus Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. You see, there's a problem here. Not even Moses can get into the presence of the Lord. God has filled up the the tent of meeting with his glory, but Moses is a sinful person. And he cannot get into the immediate presence of God. And so God has to speak to him from the tent. And Leviticus shows us how Moses goes from hearing from God from outside of the tent to hearing from God in the tent. Look at Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. I can just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Numbers is the very next book after Leviticus. And it opens this way. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai. You see, well, what happened in between? God made a way for his people to live in his presence. That's what's happening in Leviticus. That's what's happening with all these laws and rituals. God is making a way for his people to live in his presence. God's holiness and man's sinfulness, they don't mix. And it's God's holiness that is front and center throughout the entire book of Leviticus. In fact, we could split the whole book into two parts. We could do chapters 1 through 16 would be about how to worship holy God. And then chapters 17 through 27 could be living as God's holy people. It's all about holiness. And if we don't understand God's holiness, we will not understand the book of Leviticus. We will not understand the gospel. We will not understand our God. Holiness is God's set-apartness, his other-than-ness. He is profoundly different than all of his creatures. He is infinitely good and great. And that's what makes his holiness, that's what makes him dangerous. Think of God's holiness a little bit like the sun. The sun is good, but it's dangerous if you get too close to it. It consumes anything that enters into its orbit. God's holiness is like that. He's good and, and dangerous. Because anything sinful that comes into his orbit will be consumed His holiness demands that he rightly react to evil by pouring out his wrath on it. God's wrath 
is an expression of His holiness. God's wrath is His right response to evil. And what that means for evil people is that if we try to get into God's presence, sinful as we are, we will be consumed by His wrath. And so what do we do? What what is the answer to this problem? God's holiness requires atonement for sin before we can be in His presence. But God graciously provides the means for atonement. And in Leviticus, He provides through the sacrificial system. It's the sacrificial system that will bring a reconciliation between God and His people. I should define the word atonement at this point since this whole section is built around atonement. It actually comes from three English words, at, one, meant. And you can kind of get a sense of what it means there. It means to be at one with each other. It's a case of atonement with God and his people. It refers to the taking away of sins so that God and his people can be one, can live peacefully together. See, through a substitute's death, In the sacrificial system, the worshiper will be cleansed of his sins and ransomed from the death that his evil has earned. What happens in atonement is the satisfaction of the wrath of God towards sin. That's what Leviticus 1 is all about. It's about penal substitutionary atonement. A sacrifice will take the penalty of the worshiper in the place of the worshiper. We see how this is laid out for us. Verses 3 through 17. Let me read verses 1 and 2 first, though. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. Just a quick observation. God speaks to Moses and then Moses speaks to the people. God does not leave them guessing about how they should worship them, worship him. They don't, he doesn't leave them guessing about who he is, who they are, and what their responsibilities to him are. God makes clear, I am to be worshipped and this is how you can worship me. This is how you can enter into my presence. This is how you can draw near to me. In fact, the word bring there, in verse 2, brings an offering, carries the weight or the sense of draw near. And so while this invitation to participate in the sacrificial system is, is a command, it is also an invitation to draw near to God. This is how we can draw near to Him. I think it also, when I was reading this, put in my mind how central God is to our worship. And I thought how frightening it is that we sometimes get this out of balance. That we make coming here and gathering together more of a consumeristic experience than an obedience to the holy God that we are worshiping. That we, we sometimes become more consumed with what our preferences might be in worship or length of sermon then we are concerned with actually honoring and worshiping God during our time together. So thankful that God has given us his word. And I'm thankful that we are reminded that worship is about primarily pleasing God, honoring God. And the way we honor him is by doing what he says to do. Obedience to God's word is how faith is expressed. If we are those who believe God, then we will obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You will keep my commandments. And so even here, as the Israelite people offer sacrifices, their obedience is not like a magic trick. It's not a quid pro quo situation. You don't just get kind of reconciled to God by simply offering the sacrifice. The heart of the worshiper, the faith of the worshiper is also intimately involved. 
We, we know this from the minor prophets that we've been through, right? They're constantly saying, you are offering sacrifices that are not pleasing to God. They're not pleasing because they're not expressions of faith. They're just empty ritual. Rituals can be empty, but the rituals prescribed here for the Israelites in Leviticus are meaningful. The way they're meaningful is because they're expressions of faith. And we, we have rituals. They're not empty, I hope. One of our rituals is gathering regularly together on the Lord's day. I hope that has meaning in it for you. And it's an expression of your faith in Christ, your delighted obedience. We have rituals. We, we take the Lord's Supper together. We do this in remembrance of Christ Jesus our Lord. We want to proclaim his death and recognize his body as we partake together. I hope this isn't empty for you. I hope the songs that we sing to the Lord week after week are not just empty ritual, but the expression of your heart, the expression of your faith, your loving obedience to the God who has loved you and reconciled you to himself in Christ Jesus. Worship is it's all about God. And so he tells the Israelites, this is how you can express your faith in me. This is how we can live and dwell together. And that's what's going to happen here. He's kind of set the stage. We're going to have five offerings in the first few chapters of Leviticus. And the burnt offering is the first of these sacrifices. And in 3 through 17, we, we do have some repetition. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to read verses 3 through 17 all together at once. And then we're going to consider the sacrifice or the animal that is part of the sacrifice, the process of sacrifice, and then the point of the sacrifice. The whole system, though, is an expression of God's graciousness to not just eliminate his people. Look with me at verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He will bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to present the blood and splatter it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So you can kind of see on your insert there, I gave you a really crude drawing, but it's the tent, and then you can see where the altar is. This is where all this is happening, is in the altar, right outside of the tent of meeting. Then, verse 6, then he is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on top of the burning wood on the altar. The offer is to wash its entrails and legs with water. Then the priests will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he is to present an unblemished male. He will slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, will splatter its blood against the altar on all sides. He will cut the animal into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests will arrange them on top of the burning wood on the altar. But he is to wash the entrails and the legs with water. The priest will then present all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he is to present his offering from the turtle doves or young pigeons. Then the priest is to bring it to the altar and will twist off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood should be drained at the side of the altar. He will remove its crop or digestive tract. I guess that's like a little place inside of birds, like right under their beak where they kind of store food so they can eat really quick and then get away from predators and digest it later. And so you would just take this whole deal out. I didn't know what a crop was and so I had to look it up. You guys might know more about birds than me, though. Uh, cutting off its tail feathers and throw it on the east side of the altar at the place for ashes. 
He will tear it open by its wings without dividing the bird. Then the priest is to burn it on the altar, on top of the burning wood. It is a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That last phrase, it is a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord, is metaphorical language that we see three times at the conclusion of each of these three kinds of offerings that means simply God is satisfied. He's satisfied with the offering. That the offering achieved its purpose. He's pleased with it. And so we see that you can bring an animal from the herd, like a bull or a cow, an animal from the flock, like a sheep or a goat, or a bird. Now we go, is there any rhyme or reason to this? Do you just kind of go, you know, what do I feel like today? Bull, sheep, bird. And I just pick one, pick whichever costs the least to me. Well, no. The reason for the gradations and the quality of the sacrifice fits with the economic disparities that would have existed within Israel. And so you can see, if you're very wealthy and you have cattle, you are to bring the best and the blemishless. You are to bring your best bull before the Lord and offer it as a burnt offering. If you are from the middle class, you are to bring the blemishless and the best sheep to offer it to the Lord. And if you're poor and you don't have much of anything, well, birds in the land are plentiful, pigeons, you can catch a bird and you can bring it and your sin can be atoned for. God has made provision for all of his people. And you'll notice that the consequence of all of the sacrifices is the same. They follow God's word, they obey it, and the consequence is It is a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so it's not the offering itself that is appeasing God. It's the heart of the worshiper, together expressed through the obedience of the sacrifice. What we see here from the animals is that sacrifice is costly. That worship True worship is costly. I mean, these animals would have been really, really valuable. I mean, people uh, during this time period did not eat meat like we do. I mean, they, they rarely ate meat. And to take something as valuable as a whole bull and watch it go up in smoke before your eyes, ooh, that's costly. I mean, the other offerings, oftentimes the priests get to eat some of it. Uh, and some offerings, uh, the priests eat some, and then the worshiper gets some. Like if you were going to eat meat in Israel, it was offered on the altar first, and then you would get some of it. Not with the burnt offering. The burnt offering, all of it is consumed. This is it's very costly. Worship costs. It reminds me of David in uh, 2 Samuel 24, 24. He has a friend to try to give him bulls to offer, and he says, I'm not going to give an offering to the Lord that didn't cost me anything. I have to pay for it. The reason he says that is because worship that costs nothing is worth nothing. Christianity that costs nothing is worth nothing. Those of us who profess to have faith in Jesus who profess that we have taken up our cross and we are following Christ, are to be those who are actually following him and obeying him. The cross, the image of the cross, taking it up daily, Luke says, is not about wearing jewelry around your neck or in your ears. It's about following God every day, giving him your very best, living each moment, each minute, each microsecond, for his glory. It's offering your whole life in obedience to Jesus. Romans 12.1 tells us, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What does Paul mean in Romans? He's saying, we don't offer burnt offerings anymore. Jesus has fulfilled the law. 
He's the perfect burnt offering that makes atonement for sin. And now we who should be dead live. We should have been sacrificed to the Lord, but we live. And therefore we live in view of the mercies of God. We live in obedience to our God. We love our God. And so our lives are filled up with faith and that faith is expressed through our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship that costs nothing is worth nothing. I wonder, do you give God your best? I mean, there's a reason that he says, you know, you're to bring an unblemished male. Male would have been considered more valuable than the female. You're supposed to bring it kind of at its prime of life when it's going to be most valuable to you. Because God knows how we are. That provision's not in there. He knows that people are going to look around. All right, which of these guys is sick? That's the bull I'll offer. Right? Which, which one of these goats is, you know, kind of on his last leg? Got to make an offering. No, God specifically says, bring the best and the blemishless. Because he's worthy of the best. Do you give God your best? Financially, when you give, do you, do you think, man, this is going to be a good tax break? Or do you think, how much can I give? I'm investing in eternity here as the kingdom of God expands. When you wake up on Sunday morning and rain is pouring down as it was today, do you think, ah, I could sleep in, watch a movie. It's really tempting. Or do you think, I cannot wait to get to church together with my brothers and sisters in Christ and give praise and honor and glory to God. Does God in your, your, your life, does he get prioritized time? Or do he, does he just get what's left over on the margins? Are you so busy some days that you miss time in his word? Is he getting the best of your time? What in your life speaks to God being your priority? Does God get your best? He's worthy of it. There are to be those who give God the best, not just of our Sunday mornings, but of every day. They're to bring the blemishless, and the best, to offer it to the Lord. Let's look at the, the process of this sacrifice. It's got a whole bunch of components. So you've got to, you've got to lean on the sacrifice. The, the leaning on the sacrifice is assumed with the goat and the sheep and the bird. But you're going to lean on the sacrifice, slaughter it, skin it, cut it, clean it, wash it, and then watch it. This is what the worshiper does. This is very participatory worship. This is not just sit back and watch the priest do his thing. I mean, I mean, look at this. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. So here you are. You, you've brought your, your bull or your sheep, and you're there before the altar. You want to make atonement for sin? That's the point, verse 3, right? I'll bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. He's to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So you see what's going on. You're, you're, you're leaning on your, your bull, that valuable bull, the most valuable asset you probably have. You're leaning on it and you are confessing your sin, praying, you're traditional Israelite, you're, you're leaning, you're pressing on this bull, and you probably even sing a psalm. And what is happening there is you are saying, this bull is bearing my sin. This, this bull represents me. This bull will be as me before the Lord. 
So you, you lean on your sacrifice. And then you slaughter it before the Lord. Take a knife across its throat as it bleats out. Others have been performing the same ritual all day. So the air is filled with blood and smoke. And the priests come and they collect the blood from the animals. And you continue. You start skinning it as the priest takes the blood collected in a basin and sprinkles it on the altar, walking around the altar. The priest is sprinkling blood on the altar because the blood represents the life of the animal. This is what we're told in Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. He's cleansing the altar, he's purifying the altar, he's throwing the life of the animal on the altar. He's sprinkling blood that should be your blood onto the altar as you skin the bull. You begin to cut it into pieces. He arranges them on the altar. The priests do. The fire is consuming it. The smoke is going up. You clean the entrails and the intestines of the animal. All the time watching, the priest sets up the animal, which should be you, the one who represents you, the one who bears your sins, sets them into the fire. And you listen to the fire crackling. You watch the smoke go up. The smoke never stopped, by the way. This is just one of five sacrifices we see at the beginning of Leviticus. And in addition to these, there are ceremonial sacrifices that come about throughout the year. In addition to these, there was a burnt offering offered on behalf of the whole people of Israel at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day. The point there is that the altar was a busy place. A constant reminder the fire on it never went out. Leviticus 6, 12 and 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So wherever you were in the Israelite camp, the tent of meeting would be at the center and you would be able to see the smoke rise, always. And you would be reminded, I am a sinner. God is holy. I deserve to die. I need a substitute. God is holy. I am a sinner. I deserve to die. I need a substitute. Every day, when you turned your eyes to the center of the camp. Kind of the opposite of the, the morning affirmations we do nowadays, right? I'm, I'm awesome. I'm smart. I can do anything. Instead, I'm, God is holy. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. To die, I need a substitute. And God, in this offering, in these sacrifices, has provided a way for my sin to be atoned for. But you might ask, how can an animal atone for the sins of a person? And the answer is it can't. Remember we read in Hebrews 10 earlier, Hebrews 10.4? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, any grace that was conveyed by the sacrificial system in Leviticus was conveyed ultimately through Christ. The sacrificial system is the shadow 
Jesus Christ is the substance. The sacrificial system points us to Jesus. In the sacrificial system, God was teaching us about our need for a substitute. About how a sacrifice can take away sins. And in Jesus Christ, he provided the substitute. He provided the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the final burnt offering. He is the one on whom we lean and confess our sins. He is the one who stands as if he were us before the Lord and is consumed by his holy wrath. It is his blood that is splattered upon the cross to bring us life. It is his body that is torn apart so that our sins might be forgiven. Jesus dies so that our lives might be ransomed. This is why he came. Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus Christ came and he died so that all who repent of their sin and trust in him can live in God's presence. God has made a way for you to be at peace with him. He's made atonement. And you need a substitute. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, you need a substitute. I urge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, praise God. This is what he has done for us. Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died so that we might live. God's holiness requires atonement for sin before his people can be in his presence and God has graciously provided the means of atonement. He's provided the sacrifice. And our Lord Jesus not only died for our sins, he rose from the dead. And he lives interceding for us right now. He's seated at the right hand of God right now until the time comes for him to make all of his enemies his footstool. Praise God for the penal substitutionary atonement accomplished by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your holiness, that you are good and great. Lord, we thank you that you're also merciful and kind And that instead of ending us along with all that is evil in this world as we deserve, you sent Jesus to give his life for us so that we may have all the blessings of heaven, all the things that only he deserves. God, this is scandalous love. This is grace that is greater than all our sins. It is marvelous and infinite. And we praise you and we thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our substitute. Amen. The ushers, please come forward.
I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a sharing in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a sharing in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. to you now from 1 Corinthians 11 23 through 26 for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper and said this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. the body of Christ that's broken for you. It's the blood of Christ that's shared for you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for allowing us to be here in your church today, to hear your word, to participate in communion, and we believe in faith, God, of your grace for us, your work that was done on the cross for us so that we can have eternal life. Bless us, Lord, today as we leave. Give us courage this week so we can share Jesus with someone. For it's the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Our hymn of response is, I have decided to follow Jesus, page 468, if you'd like to stand with me.
Any announcements? Yes, thank you for setting all that up. You do such a good job, Pam. I don't know that we tell you enough, and I'm really grateful for all the work that you've done. <laughs> Anything else? your turn. Hi. Your son is with my husband. This is for you for Pastor Appreciation Month. Ah, okay. So we want to say thank okay. you for what you do here for us, and we love you dearly. Well, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, there's also, we posted, we're going to have a members meeting slash breakfast on the 16th of next month, I think. We're just confirming the deacons that we recommended at the previous members' meeting a month after, or I guess it's going to be more than a month after at that point. But, um, and that's Tim, if you're, I think I have it up there, but it's Tim and Jerry Volman, um, who are both not here, so you know they're off to a good, good start. Um, but yeah, so come, have breakfast, it should be really fun. Uh, and that's all that I am aware of, unless someone else has another announcement. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in your name. Pray that um, Christ would be honored in all of our lives, all of this week. Pray that you would put within us a deep joy and happiness that comes as a result of knowing him. Pray that you would help us to love you and to love one another and to love our neighbors. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.